November 28, 2009. 40 miles east of Baghdad, Iraq, deep within a makeshift U.S. Army base constructed out of plywood and shipping containers, a young specialist typed a search command into a top-secret database. She was following instructions provided by WikiLeaks. The website had put out a call for the most wanted information of the year, and at the top of the list, videos of CIA interrogations of terrorist detainees. That first search for interrogation videos was a bust. But that didn't stop Chelsea Manning from pressing on. And what she did uncover would become the biggest haul in WikiLeaks history. This is Espionage, the ParCast original exploring the missions of the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. I'm Carter Roy. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is the third episode in our six-week special on whistleblowing, where we're taking a deep dive into the world of hackers and government secrets. Last week, we covered the founding of the most infamous outlet in the modern era of whistleblowing, WikiLeaks. This week, we're discussing the massive 2010 leak of classified military documents that thrust WikiLeaks to the forefront of the whistleblowing debate and the person behind that leak, Private First Class Chelsea Manning. As a heads up, while Chelsea, formerly known as Bradley Manning, was presenting as male during many of the following events, for the purposes of clarity, we'll be referring to her by her current name and female pronouns throughout the story. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. The small town of Crescent, Oklahoma, was a bountiful land of orchards and grain silos. On December 17, 1987, its population of nearly 3,000 people gained one more member as Brian and Susan Manning welcomed their second child. Chelsea Manning's early days had all the makings of an idyllic small-town childhood. Her mother was loving and present. Her father, Brian, 
A Navy veteran and computer engineer was more distant, but he invited Chelsea into his life by teaching her about computers. By the age of eight, Manning had learned the C++ programming language. But as the internet grew more ubiquitous in the late 90s, Manning increasingly turned to computers for fulfillment and happiness, which, unfortunately, she was lacking. While her small-town family life looked idyllic, Manning was deeply unhappy. She was often on the margins of other kids' social circles. Though she was a straight-A student, she felt lonely and angry and regularly struggled with explosive outbursts of emotion in school and at home. Meanwhile, Brian and Sue's marriage was disintegrating. Brian was having an affair. Sue, who was originally from Wales, felt isolated in Nebraska and turned to drinking. In the autumn of 1999, Brian announced to his family that he was leaving. He was moving to Oklahoma City with his new girlfriend. That night, Sue swallowed nearly an entire bottle of pills. Manning's older sister, Casey, found their mother and dragged her into the family car. She told 11-year-old Manning to get in the back and make sure their mother kept breathing. Casey drove to the hospital, where Sue had her stomach pumped and spent a week under evaluation. When the family returned home, Brian was gone. As if losing a father wasn't enough, Manning was also struggling with puberty, The summer after Brian left, while still presenting as male, Manning came out as gay to a pair of friends at a sleepover, she told her mother not long after. While Sue responded that she was fine with Manning's sexual orientation, she said, Try not to tell other people, especially your dad. Being openly gay in Nebraska brought a new level of social stress into Manning's life, but the deepest emotional pain came from her relationship with her father. After one particularly fraught visit with her dad and his new stepson, Manning came home enraged and began to pound and kick the walls. Terrified, Sue called a friend for help, and together they calmed Manning. As she sat on her bed crying, she looked to her mother and said, "'Nobody understands. I'm nobody now, Mom.'" Manning's identity was already a conundrum for her. Her father had a new kid. She was gay and alone, and her academic achievements seemed to count for nothing in the social hierarchy of junior high school. Meanwhile, her mother was drinking a liter of vodka every few days. Then everything abruptly got worse. On a gorgeous Tuesday morning, A few weeks into Manning's eighth grade year, two jetliners flew into a pair of buildings 2,000 miles away. It was September 11, 2001, and Manning's life was about to change permanently. In November, Sue told Manning that they were leaving Nebraska and moving to her hometown in the United Kingdom. In an era before instant messaging or video calls, This meant that Manning was leaving the few social anchors she had. Manning enrolled in a Welsh high school called Tasker Millward and quickly became a target for teasing. She was still small and quick to anger, and she didn't understand the Welsh sense of humor. 
Instead of playing back with wit and letting jibes roll off her, Manning often yelled and kicked when she was bullied. For solace, she joined the school computer club and spent increasing amounts of time online while at home, but it wasn't enough. Manning's deep sensitivity and intelligence were always swirling inside her, waiting to burst out in anger. In 2003, right in the middle of Manning's high school career, the United States invaded Iraq. Manning was immediately and openly against the war. She told anybody that would listen that the weapons of mass destruction were a mere pretense for the U.S. and U.K. to invade and control the Iraqi oil supplies. Other students just shrugged off her political rants, but they revealed a nuanced understanding of foreign policy for her age. When Manning finished high school in spring of 2005, she wanted to return to the United States. Her mother, Sue, was drinking more and depending on Manning for everything from grocery shopping to paying bills. In desperation, Manning turned to the one person she least expected to ever speak to again, her father, Brian. And whether the Navy vet felt a pang of guilt or a long dormant sense of duty, he agreed to help Manning get settled back in Oklahoma. In the autumn of 2005, after leaving her mother with Welsh relatives, 17-year-old Manning moved into her father's house in Oklahoma City with a new stepmother and stepbrother. The situation was rough from the start. Manning never got along with her stepbrother, but her stepmother soon lost her patience too. Manning smoked in the house, broke family rules, and constantly needed financial help while also refusing to hold down a job. Then, on March 29, 2006, the simmering feud boiled over. A 911 call that night captured the frantic voice of Manning's stepmother saying, My husband's 18-year-old is out of control. She just threatened me with a knife. Her father just had surgery and he is down on the ground. She yelled at Manning to get away from Brian, who had stepped between them when the knife appeared. In the background, a soft, gentle voice asked, Are you okay, Dad? That was it for Manning's welcome in Brian's house. When the police arrived, they took her to an overnight shelter. A few days later, Manning packed up her things and left Oklahoma City for good. Manning felt she was finally free from the constraints of her family, but now she was homeless and alone. For a few months, she bounced around Oklahoma and Illinois, picking up odd jobs and crashing on couches. Finally, she reached out to her father's sister, a high-powered attorney in Maryland. Aunt Debbie was not close with Manning, but she heard the desperation in the 19-year-old's voice. Debbie wired $200 and offered a place for Manning to stay. On July 2, 2006, Manning turned up on her aunt's doorstep in a suburb of Washington, D.C. For the first time in her young life, she had stability and calm at home. She moved in, set up her computer, and found a job at Starbucks. She also joined a dating site and dived into the gay social scene in D.C., 
mingling with the highly educated, upper-class young students that populated the nation's capital. Her dating profile described a geek intellectual. But this know-it-all identity was also Manning's Achilles' heel. Manning believed that her intelligence was the lone redeeming feature in her mismatched identity. Precocious computer skills and chatting politics with peers who couldn't have cared less had given her an inflated sense of self-importance, even when she had little else going for her. But now, her social network was filled with prestige and power. As a five-foot-two computer geek with no college education or life experience, Manning had little to offer among the high-class circles in the capital. She enrolled in community college, but dropped out after a single semester. Debbie surmised that it was because Manning was no longer one of the smartest kids in the room, and she didn't like it. Debbie said, She was used to everything coming easily and seemed shocked that she didn't know everything. Once again, Manning found herself adrift. Her identity as an intelligent computer geek no longer seemed adequate, and she was stuck in a meaningless job with no success at dating. So, in September 2007, Manning made an abrupt change. She enlisted in the U.S. Army. She said it was because the Army would pay for college, but Manning was also hunting for a new identity, or at least a way to channel her intellectual ego into something useful. As she arrived at basic training, that hunt would lead Manning straight into the betrayal of the very secrets she was trained to keep. We'll hear all about the difficult events that led to Manning's act of espionage right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Now, back to the story. In the second week of October 2007, 19-year-old Chelsea Manning reported for basic training at Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri. She left behind her Aunt Debbie in Maryland with a hopeful goodbye as she embarked on a new path, ready to find direction after years of listless moves and painful family experiences. Instead, she found more difficult circumstances than she'd ever faced before. Still presenting as male, Manning found her identity once again fractured. In 2007, the U.S. military still maintained a policy of don't ask, don't tell for gay people serving in the armed forces. Being openly gay wasn't an option. 
but being punished for being gay was also prohibited. In theory, this would allow gay people to serve without issues from superiors or other soldiers. But this theory didn't always work in practice. Certainly not for Manning. Her boot camp troubles began almost immediately. She was short, thin, and chronically late to roll call. She wasn't exactly hiding her homosexuality either. She had a pink phone and an effeminate manner that didn't fit the macho culture that surrounded her. The familiar teasing that used to come from classmates now came from fellow army privates. Even the drill sergeants treated Manning more harshly than the other new recruits. Steve Rodriguez, who was in boot camp with Manning, said she was always doing push-ups, getting yelled at for the smallest thing. Most of the time, she just sat there and took it. Most of the time. But Manning was boiling with rage throughout boot camp, and it didn't take her long to start fighting back. When the drill sergeants yelled at her to shut up, Manning would scream right back that she wasn't talking. Sometimes she would get so upset during fights and arguments that she wet herself or got a nosebleed. On at least two occasions, Manning ended up in the psychiatric ward for a checkup. Due to these troubles, it took six months for Manning to complete the normally 10-week basic training program. Many of her fellow recruits, and even Manning herself, didn't expect the Army to allow her to continue through graduation. But with two wars in full swing, the U.S. Army needed manpower. On April 3, 2008, Manning graduated from boot camp and started training as an intelligence analyst at an Army base in Arizona. This was where Manning first leaked sensitive information. Three weeks after starting intelligence training, Manning uploaded three videos to her YouTube channel about Army life. They were benign descriptions of training and the work she was learning to do, with some messages to family and friends. However, in the messages, Manning described the interior of a sensitive compartmented information facility, or SCIF, SCIF. The SCIF is a secure room full of computers and filing cabinets where all sensitive military information is stored and handled. A description of the inside of a SCIF is considered secret information. This was common knowledge amongst intelligence trainees, and nearly 25 peers in Manning's class raised a warning about the information in the videos she posted. Manning was reprimanded and ordered to remove the videos. She was also instructed to create a presentation for her intel training class about handling sensitive information. However, there were no other significant consequences. The leak was considered an honest mistake by an immature new private. An Army spokesperson said, In a training environment with young people who aren't used to the Army, we deal with a wide variety of folks doing inappropriate things. It's dealt with, and they go on to do great things for the Army and country. Unfortunately, nobody could have anticipated what things Manning would go on to do in the Army, or how drastically they would change the future of the country. After completing intelligence training in mid-2008, 
Manning was stationed at Fort Drum in upstate New York as an intel analyst in the 10th Mountain Brigade. By November 2008, Manning was settled into military life, including a new top-secret clearance and access to the Army's intelligence data network. On a daily basis, Manning was receiving, condensing, and disseminating real-time updates from troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. These updates were called Significant Activities Reports, or SIGACs. SIGACs were the raw data of war, giving troop counts, death tolls, and honest testimonies about enemy engagements. They included radio transmission transcripts, videos, action summaries, and messages from enemy informants. Manning's job was to analyze the massive swarm of SIGACs and distill the data into graphs and presentations for her superior officers. These reports were then further distilled and sent up the chain of command to inform high-level decisions. Manning was learning the details of American military hegemony, the good, bad, and ugly, The vast trove of data at her fingertips, combined with her long-standing curiosity and intelligence, gave Manning a new perspective on the Army and the United States government, including the facts that the U.S. was both hiding important details about the war from the public and ignoring valuable intelligence if it made the military's actions look bad. This alarmed Manning, and set the stage for a moral conflict, especially as she started to see the direct consequences of the intelligence she provided. In one instance, a U.S. Army unit ambushed a meeting of suspicious agents that Manning had identified. An innocent bystander was killed. Manning felt a deep sense of guilt, and she knew this was only one out of many incidents where the intelligence she analyzed and distilled cost innocent lives. Still, for the first time in her life, Manning felt a sense of pride in her work. She had top-secret clearance and a job that sounded gritty and heroic, unlike most other jobs involving computers. She felt like the trade-off might be worth it especially when she went back to her Aunt Debbie's home outside Washington, D.C. while on leave, where she realized that suddenly she had social capital. She was going to the gay bars and parties she'd frequented before, but now people said they admired her courage for being gay and in the military. Manning's ego inflated among the news junkies and pundits of D.C. who found her interesting, if still emotionally immature. But not all the social effects of Manning's new job at Fort Drum were so positive. She was still living a double life, and she felt claustrophobic in the ranks of the Army. One of Manning's D.C. friends, Jason Edwards, said she would complain about being surrounded by people she just considered stupid, her intellectual inferiors. Her emotions could turn on a dime. When she called from Fort Drum... It was bad, screaming and crying, and there wasn't a lot that was coherent. Manning felt like her sensitive emotions had no outlet in the military. Socially, she was miserable. And to make matters worse, Manning's unit was about to deploy to Iraq. 
Already unhappy and unstable, now she was going into a war zone. It was only a matter of time before she would reach the breaking point. On October 29, 2009, Manning and her unit arrived at a forward operating base in Madain Kada, Iraq. The work of most soldiers in the desert was hot and tedious, but Manning spent most days in a dark plywood room in front of computers and servers. This room was the frontline version of the skiff room she'd been trained in, where secure military data was analyzed and disseminated. However, the secure facility was not as impregnable as the name implied. Only some of the computers had access to the SIPR net, or SIPRNet, which was the classified data network. So, since multiple soldiers used these same few computers, the login passwords were written on sticky notes next to the keyboard. Regulation stipulated strict protocols for storing data, but many soldiers simply kept files on unlabeled CDs, which piled up around the skiff. Some even used the skiff computers to play games or watch pirated movies. But the most glaring oversight was war porn. Soldiers were not supposed to be in the skiff without a reason, but many went in there to hang out and watch videos recorded by army helicopters and Humvees during enemy engagements, which they called war porn. Many of these videos showed direct combat, enemy casualties, and U.S. firepower in action. The soldiers loved watching the videos on replay. They got to see the explosive and violent results of their work firsthand. These graphic war porn videos were never meant to be seen by the public, but many news organizations knew they existed, and so did WikiLeaks, which on November 25, 2009, came to Manning's attention. The whistleblowing website published a massive trove of transcripts from emergency radio calls on 9-11, many of which had never been made public. Even while Manning was on deployment, she was a voracious news junkie. The WikiLeaks release was a big headline, and Manning noticed immediately that the majority of the transcripts came from an NSA database similar to the one she accessed on a daily basis. To Manning, it seemed like WikiLeaks was dealing with credible sources in legitimate positions of power, which sparked a dangerous idea. Manning started to wonder if she could be one of those credible sources. She still struggled with the daily reminders that the U.S. Army didn't always act nobly on the intelligence she provided. Sometimes the military got it wrong. And Manning knew the feeling of getting it wrong. Every day was a struggle for her in a body that didn't seem like the right one. Manning was questioning her gender, along with her identity in the world at large. She found an online gender identity counselor and reached out with a deluge of conflicted feelings. At the end of one of her emails, she simply wrote, I feel like a monster. Manning was presenting male and trying to exist within the macho culture of the army, but neither of these felt like her true self. 
Her true self was sensitive and morally righteous, Manning believed, and WikiLeaks, not the U.S. Army, seemed to be the place for her to make a difference. WikiLeaks had posted a public request for videos of CIA interrogations, which the Pentagon had claimed were destroyed. So three days after the 9-11 transcript release, Manning searched the database for videos of those interrogations. And on November 30th, she reached out to Julian Assange directly. Manning wasn't ready to leak information from her classified network yet. She was still just toying with the idea, wondering if this was the solution to all her problems. By the end of the year, she'd be sure. On December 20th, 2009, Manning experienced her worst outburst yet. After showing up late for duty yet again, her supervisor took her aside for a disciplinary meeting. In the middle of the conversation, Manning erupted in anger and flipped over the table. Another soldier burst into the room, saw Manning in a screaming rage, and put her into a full Nelson headlock. Manning soon calmed down, and no further disciplinary action was taken. But she was increasingly sure. She and the military were not on the same team. On January 5th, 2010, 22-year-old Manning began downloading classified documents onto the Skiff computer hard drive. By the time she was done, weeks later, she had 491,000 SIGACs related to the U.S. war in Iraq. One of these was a video of a U.S. Apache helicopter attack on suspected militants that killed two journalists from Reuters. This particular attack had been under investigation by the press for over two years, but the Pentagon had still refused to release video of the encounter to the public. So Manning decided to do it herself. First, she burned an unlabeled CD to get the video off the sensitive data hard drive in the skiff. Once she encrypted the video onto her personal MacBook in her bunk, it was as simple as uploading it through WikiLeaks' website portal. On February 15th, Manning sent the encrypted video file. A week later, WikiLeaks tweeted that they had the video decrypted. The public release would be coming soon. But Manning wasn't done. In early March, she downloaded and sent another quarter of a million documents from the military diplomatic cable database. These were sensitive cables between U.S. embassies and Washington with frank assessments of other countries and their leaders. The information was highly embarrassing. Manning wasn't particularly selective in her leaks. She downloaded anything and everything she could get her hands on about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. She wasn't leaking information on any specific policy or scandal. In fact, she was blowing the whistle on government secrecy in general. Manning felt this was a noble goal, one she knew was shared by Julian Assange. She was doing what she felt was right, both for her and for the public. In one of her earliest messages to WikiLeaks, Manning wrote that the SIGACs she was leaking were 
historical documents to show the true nature of 21st century asymmetric warfare. By revealing the U.S. government's dark secrets, she felt like she was finally fighting the good fight. She was an important top-secret source, and that felt like the best identity she'd ever had. On April 5th, 2010, Julian Assange held a press conference in Washington, D.C., and finally showed the Apache attack video to the public. The political reaction was almost instantaneous. The leak was the headline in major newspapers across the globe. Many were accusing the U.S. of war crimes. The Pentagon tried their best to defend the Apache attack, but the damage was done. So the Pentagon switched tactics. They decided to go after Julian Assange, WikiLeaks, and their source. Coming up, the hunt for Chelsea Manning begins. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now, back to the story. By May 2010, 22-year-old Army Specialist Chelsea Manning had sent hundreds of thousands of classified documents, videos, and diplomatic cables to WikiLeaks. Julian Assange's very public unveiling of the helicopter attack video he called Collateral Murder was the public's first glimpse at the massive trove of data. Manning's feelings of pride started to flourish immediately. She could see the direct effects of her action— unlike in her work as part of the huge military machine. Back at the forward operating base in Iraq, the release was being discussed by the troops. A captain named Martin recalled, I asked if they had seen the video, because obviously it does not make the military look very good. That affects us. Then Manning came up to me and said she thought it was the same video from our share drive. I said, no way. That's not the same video. So Manning went to the skiff and pulled up the classified database. She sent Martin an email with a link to the video in the database and then the link to the WikiLeaks video. Manning was proving to a superior officer that the video had come from the database she accessed. Apparently, she'd never been prouder of her work. If Manning wanted to get caught, she was on the right track. Her pride was affecting her behavior, making her reckless. Perhaps because, despite her pride, she still felt trapped, empty, and deeply unhappy. 
On May 7th, just before the night shift began around 10 p.m., a sergeant found Manning sitting on the floor of a storage room with a knife at her feet. A nearby chair had the words, I want, carved into it. Manning was clutching her knees to her chest, staring blankly. The sergeant asked if she was okay. Manning said she felt like she wasn't there, she had no personality, and that her true identity was covered by many other layers. The sergeant listened quietly and suggested Manning see the chaplain, but Manning pulled herself together to begin her shift. Two hours later, around midnight, Manning was playing a game on the skiff computer, Killing Time, which was technically against the rules but common practice among the troops. An officer came in, looking for a particular file on the intel network. Manning couldn't find it, so she went to wake up her supervisor from the day shift. When the irritated supervisor came into the skiff, she saw that Manning had been playing computer games. The supervisor was furious. The argument escalated to a shouting match, until Manning abruptly punched her supervisor in the face. The supervisor quickly whirled and slammed Manning to the floor, restraining her. Manning screamed, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of everyone watching. From that point on, Manning's life in the army was in a downward spiral. She was demoted from specialist to private. The firing mechanism was removed from her standard-issue rifle, and the unit psychiatrist recommended she be discharged. Her duties were immediately shifted as well. She no longer had access to the skiff for work and was placed on grunt work tasks. Meanwhile, desperate for friends and connection, Manning started messaging strangers online. One of these strangers was Adrian Lamo, a hacker who had gained some notoriety in the early 2000s after hacking the New York Times website. Around midnight on May 21, 2010, Manning was lonely and bored in her bunk. It was still afternoon in the U.S., and she saw Lamo was online from his home in California. Manning typed out a quick message. How are you? I'm an Army intelligence analyst deployed to eastern Baghdad, pending discharge for gender identity disorder. If you had unprecedented access to classified networks, what would you do? This startlingly direct message was the beginning of Manning's downfall. After Lamo responded, Manning unleashed a torrent of emotional confessions about her situation over the course of several days. She'd finally found someone who expressed interest in her feelings and struggles, and the dam she'd been forced to keep in place on deployment finally burst. They discussed everything from the don't-ask-don't-tell policy to military intelligence and computer hacking. Eventually, Manning sent Lamo a link to WikiLeaks, saying, This is what I do for friends. Living such an opaque life has forced me never to take transparency, openness, and honesty for granted. From there, Manning opened up with her real name and her entire life story, laying bare her emotional turmoil before finally arriving at her recent leaks. Manning wrote, 
Let's just say someone I know intimately well has been penetrating U.S. classified networks, mining data, and transferring that data from the classified networks over the air gap onto a commercial network computer and uploading it to Julian Assange. According to Kim Zetter from Wired, the air gap refers to computers or networks that are not connected directly to the internet or to any other computers that are connected to the internet. These air-gapped computers are considered very difficult to hack, but Manning was admitting that someone had done it on some of the most secure computers the military had. But she didn't stop there. Manning described in detail some of the trove of documents and diplomatic cables. On May 23rd, Lamo messaged Manning with specific questions, asking more about Manning's actions. For the next two days, their internet chat logs registered an extensive discussion about Manning's mental state and motivations. Manning was so happy to have a consistent friend, even over the internet, that she didn't bother asking why Lamo was suddenly so interested in the leak. On the 26th, Manning wrote, I want people to see the truth regardless of who they are, because without information, you cannot make informed decisions as a public. Or maybe I'm just young, naive, and stupid. What if I were someone more malicious? I could have sold to Russia or China, but information should be free. Manning's idealism lined up well with Julian Assange's original motivation for creating WikiLeaks. Manning felt like she was doing the right thing in undermining American military secrecy. In her ideal computer-networked world, secrecy would be abolished, and the government would run as transparently as possible. Unfortunately, the U.S. Army saw things differently. At the end of his conversation with Manning on May 26th, Adrian Lamo turned over his chat logs to federal investigators. They acted quickly once they had positive identification of the whistleblower. A few hours later, Manning was arrested in Iraq on suspicion of espionage. With Manning in a holding cell, WikiLeaks was faced with a dilemma— they still hadn't published the vast majority of Manning's leaks, and some of Assange's partners worried that if they did, it would make Manning's situation worse. But Assange thought differently. He had always published whatever documents he had in his possession, as widely as possible. He couldn't stop now. And he believed he owed that to Manning who had sent them to WikiLeaks in order for them to be published. Not publishing would be the real betrayal. It would mean Manning had done it all for nothing. Assange agreed to team up with reporters at The Guardian, The New York Times, and Der Spiegel to release the documents under the name The War Logs. On July 25, 2010, over seven months after Manning's first leak, and two months exactly after her arrest, the international team published the first batch of leaked documents simultaneously. The Afghan war logs were the world's first introduction to the modern era of whistleblowing. 
America's secret files and data were no longer stored in backroom filing cabinets. They were on computer servers. And Manning had shown that those servers were perfectly accessible if you had the right tools. Manning had also put WikiLeaks at the forefront of international whistleblowing. P.J. Crowley, an assistant secretary of state at the time of the publication, said, Without Chelsea Manning, Julian Assange is just another fringe actor who resents what he sees as American hegemonic hubris. None of that would get her out of prison, where she awaited judgment for her actions. And she'd also face judgment in the court of public opinion, which would ultimately decide if she was a criminal or a hero. But regardless of public opinion, the consequences of her whistleblowing would be dire. Manning had called down the wrath of the most powerful government on earth. The fallout would affect everyone involved. Manning, Assange, and even Adrian Lamo. As we'll see next week, the stakes were now life and death. Thanks for listening to Espionage. We'll be back next week with part four of our whistleblowing special on the fallout of whistleblowing and the dangerous consequences that await those who are caught in the act. For more information on Chelsea Manning, amongst the many sources we used, we found Private by Denver Nix and Insurgent Truth by Lita Maxwell extremely helpful to our research. You can find all of our podcast originals for free on Spotify. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll be back next week to continue our deep dive into the world of whistleblowing. Espionage was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Espionage was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher. I'm Carter Roy. 